Hello, and welcome to Ipsa Dixit, a podcast on legal scholarship. I'm your host, Brian L. Fry, Spears Gilbert Associate Professor of Law at the University of Kentucky College of Law. My guest is Bob Tarantino, an entertainment lawyer in Toronto and a PhD candidate at Osgoode Hall Law School. We will discuss his dissertation, If You Love Something, Set It Free, Open Content Copyright Licensing and Creative Cultural Expression. So welcome to the podcast, Bob. Thanks, Brian. Happy to be here. Yeah, this is so great. I'm I'm so glad glad to get a chance to talk to you for the first time after having corresponded with you over the internet for a long time. And I absolutely love this dissertation so much. I mean, not only is it a great work of of copyright scholarship, but it's about Dungeons and Dragons, which is just like the greatest thing ever. Like an entire dissertation about. <laughs> about Dungeons and Dragons. There you go. You come for the copyright, you stay for the D&D. No, I, I, appreciate, <laughs> I appreciate the kind words. That's, that's very generous of you. Okay. Okay. So we're going to get to the D&D soon, but I want to start with the copyright because that's really the crux of the paper. And the reason you're talking about Dungeons and Dragons and this kind of the, the social milieu of Dungeons and Dragons and particularly the, the the creation of the intellectual elements related to Dungeons and Dragons. So, so in your dissertation, you begin by talking about copyright theory, identifying the prevailing consequentialist and deontological theories of copyright, but also putting a pen in what you refer to as a communicative theory of copyright. So I wonder if you could kind of briefly, for listeners who may not be as familiar with with copyright and copyright theory, talk about what those prevailing theories are, sort of what they assume about what copyright law is for, and how the communicative theory you talk about is different and where it came from. Sure. So as you mentioned, there's two kind of conventional copyright justification theories. And, and when I say justification theory, I mean a theory which tries to explain why it is that we have copyright. Because copyright's obviously, you know, an artificial construction. It, it, it's a, a an artifact of, of humans' effort. And so the question becomes, well, why? Like, what is this trying to accomplish? And so the two prevailing theories, I think you can kind of categorize most of the theoretical work into two slots. The first is kind of a consequentialist or more narrowly a utilitarian theory, which says what we want to accomplish here is we want to give people an incentive to create works, and we want to give people an incentive to disseminate those works. Because we think that society is kind of a better place if people have access to creative cultural expression. And we're going to calibrate the system in a way which maximizes how much work is created and how much work is disseminated in the, in the sort of reach of that dissemination. A sort of adjacent theory, which isn't necessarily contradictory to that utilitarian approach, is a deontological approach which says that in fact copyright doesn't have a kind of consequentialist slant. What it's really there to do is to recognize pre-existing rights that authors possess as a result of the authorial or, or creative activity that they engage in. Um, and, and sort of in, in broad strokes, again, I think you can kind of place these two uh, conventional groups of theories in, in kind of continental uh, 
category. So, you know, the, the consequentialist utilitarian is sort of an Anglo-American approach and the deontological is, is kind of a continental European approach. And, you know, over the last 30 odd years, what you've seen in, in the copyright literature is kind of a, a questioning of, of the, the appropriateness or the, the wisdom of, of approaching copyright using those two lenses and coming at it instead, what I call an orthogonal approach or refer to as an orthogonal approach. And this comes out of a set of sort of political commitments and, and uh, descriptions of, you know, human psychology and, and creative activity, which argue that really what we're trying to accomplish with copyright is we're trying to incentivize, but also embed a sort of processual dialogic approach. What we really want to do is not have people sort of create widgets for the purpose of creating widgets, but engage in a cultural conversation and really the measure of, of the copyright system should be not how much does it generate, but to what extent does it maximize participation? To what extent does it enable people to sort of enter the cultural flow, to engage with previously existing works, to rework those and develop their own new content that they then, you know, iterate on and you know, release out into the world to, to sort of further this perpetual discussion as it were. Mm -hmm. So I wonder if you could talk just a little bit more about that last theory, because in your paper, you refer a lot specifically to what you call the communicative theory, uh, which you link to the scholar Karis Craig, among among others. And I wonder if you could talk about like, what does communicative mean in that context and sort of how would we differentiate it theoretically from those other two models? Sure. And I draw heavily on, on Dr. Craig's work and, and Dr. Craig was my, my dissertation supervisor. And, and so I was really, you know, inspired by her scholarship in this regard. And hopefully I, I've made some contribution to, to sort of furthering the discussion that she's started. I'll, I'll frame this by saying that I think it, it's, it's accurate to characterize uh, Professor Craig's work as, you know, markedly feminist. And it adopts a, a critical lens, which is really sort of embedded and, and situational in the sense that it makes the observation that humans are by nature relational beings. Um, we, we are defined by a context. We are not these sort of, you know, atomistic monads that kind of, you know, ping pong through um, a society. We are really the product of the environment within which we are embedded and, and the relationships um, that construe us and, and that support us. And so the, the communicative approach draws on that relational author, this notion that nothing is ever, you know, completely new. Everything is really a contribution to an ongoing conversation that builds on Contrib previous contributions uh, to that to that conversation, and that when we communicate, we do so not in a sort of univocal way or a unilateral way. We're not just sort of projecting for the sake of projecting. We're doing it in the expectation that there will be an audience and that there will be a response, and that this sort of cycle of creativity will will um, 
sort of perpetuate. And so this, this communicative approach tries to set out a framework which says what we're doing with copyright or what we want to accomplish with copyright is maximize the participation of individuals. And so we start not from a proprietarian approach where we say that, you know, the act of creation gives rise to, uh, you know, a, a sort of full bore property right, capital P, but rather that the, the act of creation is dialogic, it's communicative, it's intended to be a, be a contribution. And so when we're thinking about how to calibrate the system or how to structure the system, we want to have or, or be sensitive to the need to uh, enable participation in the system. And so things, it, you know, it, it places an emphasis on things like fair use or fair dealing um, or, you know, copyright term limits or the originality test as mechanisms for limiting copyright's potential overreach and ensuring that everybody can participate in a meaningful way. Mm. So an, another concept you deploy frequently in your dissertation is that of open content, uh, uh, open content or, or open licensing. Um, so I wonder if you could talk about sort of what is open content, open licensing, what makes a work open versus closed, and how does this idea of openness relate to the communicative theory uh, that you've been describing and its kind of goals in relation to what we think we want to accomplish in relation to, to copyright? So the openness and, and, and this concept of open really needs to be juxtaposed with the, the concept of closed. And, and so I'll start by talking about sort of a conventional uh, approach to copyright licensing, which is a, a closed approach and which contemplates really a bilateral relationship between a single licensor and a single licensee. The licensor sets, you know, fairly rigid and, and, and predetermined uh, terms on which the licensee can engage with or can use the work and anything that the licensee does that falls outside of those parameters constitutes infringement and, and the licensor the expectation i think on on both the part of the licensor and the licensee is that the, the licensor is going to police those boundaries and is and is going to you know act um, take action if there's any infringement the open movement really started in the, the late 70s and early 80s in the context of software. Um, and so for, for any of your listeners who are familiar with open source software, that's really the start of this concept of open content licensing. And there the notion was, look, rather than code, software code being proprietary and being locked down and you know anybody who wants to use it needing permission to make use of it, let's open it up. Let's make it freely available, freely accessible. And rather than the licensor being concerned with policing the parameters of, of the permission that's been given, let's make the permission as broad as possible. And say, look, essentially, let's say, look, if you want this code, take the code, use it, do whatever you want with it. You don't have to continually check back or, or you know, check yourself and, and make sure that what you're doing is compliant with the terms of some restrictive license, just sort of have at it, right? We'd, we're more interested in, in um, 
incentivizing creativity and incentivizing iterative uh, expression with the code than we are in, in making sure that our you know capital R rights are are you know being being respected and the open source software movement you know has a has a storied history which I won't go into it, it, it had a bunch of sort of spin-offs if I can call them that um, including things like the you know the open access movement uh, with respect to, to government data and, and open educational materials movement um, one of the spin-offs one of the sort of siblings or, or children I'm not really sure which is the right uh, metaphor to use there is open content and open content was really taking the principles behind the open source software movement and applying it to what I'll call creative cultural expression. So, you know, software is fairly functional. It's fairly utilitarian. Uh, there's a, clearly room for creativity in it, but the open source software movement was, was taking place in, a, in an environment where people were writing computer code for the purposes of, you know, creating word processing programs and, and database management programs. Mm. And a group of, uh, you know, forward thinking folks, uh, including uh, Larry Lessig, got together and said, well, what, what if we apply this concept to creative works? So like novels and photographs and poems and songs um, and paintings. And that eventually gave rise to the Creative Commons organization and its suite of licenses. Um, and so though it's a set of licenses which are modular and which people can voluntarily pick and choose amongst and apply those licenses to creative cultural expression. And, and they've been fantastically successful. I mean, the, the Creative Commons uh, organization was founded in uh, the early 2000s. It was either 2000 or 2001. Um, and in the ensuing, you know, 18, 19 years, more than a, a billion and a half works have been licensed um, using Creative Commons licenses. So there's clearly an appetite wow. out there for people to take this approach with their content, to make it available on an open basis. And by open, again, we mean not worrying too much about what the licensee is going to do with it and, and, it, and maximizing the latitude that they have to make use of the work that's being, being made available under the license. Right. And so that seems consistent with this kind of communicative approach in the sense that it focuses on the ability of people to use material rather than on the ability of the creator of the material to control its use. Yeah, I think really the, the underlying principle that, that characterizes open approaches to content is this principle of use maximization. And so it's, mm. it's making, making content available uh, not in a bilateral sense, but in a, in a multilateral sense. So you have a single licensor essentially saying to all comers, have at it, right? I'm making the content available. Here are the terms, which are, you know, fairly simple, usually. Um, and I'd like you as the licensee to you know, sort of, you know, make use of this in whatever way you deem fit. Now, there's a there's sort of a a spectrum of openness. And, and, you know, even when we look at the Creative Commons suite of licenses, they have, you know, a, a, a truly open license or, or at one end of their range, they have truly open licenses like their, their public domain dedications or their CCBY license, which is, you know, the only sort of limitation is uh, providing attribution. Um, and at the more restrictive end of the range, you have 
licenses like the the non-commercial and the uh, no derivative work licenses which impose certain restrictions on what the licensee can make or the uses that the licensee can make of the content but but generally and particularly by contrast with more conventional licensing approaches um, you know these are these are radically different licenses you know if you, if you compare sort of a, a conventional you know synchronization license that somebody might get from uh, one of the big three music publishers uh, it, it, it looks startlingly different as compared to what you would get under a Creative Commons license. Mm, mm. So it's, it, it seems like this kind of open source, open content idea has certain kind of goals that it wants to achieve in terms of outcomes. I mean, there, in a sense, there is a kind of consequentialist um, flavor to it, as it were. How do we go about evaluating like whether or not it works in particular circumstances, why it works in particular circumstances, and to whom that sort of alternative way of thinking about ownership and the relationship to a work of authorship will be attractive? So that's an excellent question, and thank you for posing it, because that, that really is kind of the animating approach that I tried to take in the dissertation, was to pose this question of, if you're somebody who has a piece of content uh, and you're thinking about how do I disseminate this content? How do I exploit this content? And how would you decide as a, as a owner slash licensor whether or not to make use of an open content license for your content? So what I wanted to come up with ultimately was a sort of heuristic which says, here are the different factors that you need to take into account in making that decision. And what I found through my literature review and also through the fieldwork that I conducted was that you can come up with what I've called a matrix of, of success indicia, this sort of array of different factors or circumstances which get categorized into four categories. So we look at characteristics of the licensor, we look at characteristics of the work that's being licensed, we look at the market into which the work is going to be exploited, and we look at the community which makes up the audience for the work. And you can sketch the, the characteristics of each of these four facets of the matrix and sort of, you know, I, I, it's not a quantitative approach in the sense that, look, if you can sort of check off 50% plus one of these boxes, then you're good to go. It's really more of a, a qualitative approach, which says the more of these characteristics that are, you know, present in your circumstances, the more likely it is that you as a licensor are going to find this to be a useful or, or productive way in which to disseminate your license. And right. so, you know, there, there's certainly, these licenses are going to appeal to, and, and therefore I think be useful for, or successful for certain types of licensors, right? If, if you're a licensor who, you know, is quite concerned with the integrity of your work or with, or, or with, making sure that people don't use your work in a way that you might find offensive or, or, or demeaning, open content licensing probably isn't for you. But if you're the type of licensor who's interested in, you know, enabling creativity for its own sake and you're, you sort of prioritize, you know, reach as opposed to revenue, 
um, amongst a variety of other factors, then open content licensing, I think, is a great option for people. And I, I think it's a type of license that more content owners should consider because I think it's it's going to be productive and useful for more con more types of products and or more types of um, owners and more types of works than is, is currently appreciated. Yeah. And I love the story that you tell in the dissertation about like the path that certain creators came, took in order to realize that open source, open licensing was an appropriate model for them. But before we talk about that, I wonder if you can kind of situate the the study of the paper for listeners. So it, what you did was a qualitative empirical study of of role playing games, sp specifically Dungeons and Dragons and the people participating in the creation of new content in the Dungeons and Dragons sphere. So I wonder if you could just start by for listeners who might not be familiar just explaining what Dungeons and Dragons is, where it came from, how it works, and sort of what the history in a nutshell of the sort of Dungeons and Dragons social milieu is. Happy to do so. And, and, and generally, I find that, you know, my the extent to which I'm going to get along with somebody is usually a function of the extent to which they find this story interesting. So I, uh, I'll, I'll frame it that way. Um, but Dungeons and Dragons is a tabletop role-playing game. Uh, so meaning it's, it's not a video game. It's played with, you know, paper and pen and in, in a, usually a physical environment uh, by a, a group of players literally sitting around a table. Um, and it was created in the mid-1970s. Uh, and it really was the first game of its type. So in sort of the the gaming world you have you know different sort of silos of games there's board games there's kind of you know war games card games uh role-playing games are, are their own uh kind of beast or, or genre and they were started by dungeons and dragons and, and dungeons and dragons experienced a couple of different periods of uh, incredible popularity um one of which probably the peak was in the early to mid 1980s um and, you know, a role-playing game is a game that, frankly, puts a lot of expectations on the players. So players are expected to take on a role. They take on a character who exists in a setting. There is usually a game master in, in the D&D game. It's, that person is usually referred to as the dungeon master, whose job it is to essentially sort of run the the scenarios or, or run the the storytelling encounters and, and i think one useful way of thinking about what a role-playing game is is it's essentially sort of you know moderated storytelling or, or rules-based storytelling where, where people are creating these narratives using these characters that they themselves control the dnd game you know, over the, the 40 plus years of its existence has consistently consistently been the most popular role-playing game. Um, it, it's sort of the, the giant in its industry. Um, and what happened was in the 1990s, um, the game lost popularity. There were some, you know, other competitors that came into the space, you know, video games, 
um, and card certain types of, of card games like Magic the Gathering, which really drove down the popularity of D&D. And the game gets released or historically has been released in different editions. And as the company that owned D&D at the time, which was Wizards of the Coast, was contemplating the third edition, uh, which would be released ultimately in the year 2000, uh, there was a sales executive there, a, a guy by the name of Ryan Dancy, who decided, you know what would be interesting? Why don't we take the ideas that animate open source software and let's apply them to this role-playing game? Let's see if we can open up the system, if we can make it available for free, and see whether that isn't going to have some kind of beneficial effects for our for our our audience. And the the I think the animating impulse was it, it was really in in distinction to the previous owners and, and the approach that they had taken to uh, enforcing their intellectual property rights. They were notoriously aggressive in enforcing their intellectual property rights, both their copyrights and their trademarks, um, and, and you know, routinely sued their competitors, routinely threatened to sue their own customers. Um, and the new owners said effectively, we're going to do a 180 on that. We're going to open up the game. And because we think that our audience is a really creative audience, we think that they're really engaged. They clearly want to use this material in a creative way. They want to come up with their own new games, their own scenarios, their own supplements to the game. Uh, and we're going to let them do that. Um, and so they did. And the, they did that in the year 2000. They released the third edition under the open game license, uh, which was created specifically for, for the game. Um, and in the ensuing you know, 19, almost 20 years now, um, the game has really seen a resurgence in, in popularity and, and cultural sort of impact that I think at least in part, or I would argue at least in part, is attributable to this open approach that they've taken. Yeah, I, mean, I got to say, like, what was fascinating to me when reading that part of your dissertation was the way in which the business model and kind of conception of the demand for the product that you describe on the part of the kind of owners of the D&D franchise at the time felt so much like kind of social media before social media. I mean, effectively, they were essentially saying like, this, the value of our product is all about the network effects. And the more people we have using our product, the more valuable our product ultimately ends up being. It's just like, we don't want like dilution by alternatives. We want to bring people into the fold and encourage them to collaborate on sort of like a single standard almost. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And, and what's interesting about the open game license and the use of it by D&D is that they were really quite explicit about this. Like there's all kinds of interviews and, and statements that are available online from the late 1990s and early 2000s when the owners of the game were saying exactly what you've just said, that they were really interested in taking advantage of the network effects that role-playing games enjoyed. There, to me, perhaps the, the most interesting element of it, though, is something that I think was unexpected. And, and that was they originally released the game using, or using the open game license, anticipating that what people were going to do was they were going to create new material for Dungeons and Dragons. And they did. 
um, you know, the industry sort of blossomed. There were, there were, you know, hundreds of new publishers um, opened their doors and started creating content and, and selling it. And I mean, I guess just parenthetically, I should note here, you know, it, it's difficult. It, it, it's a, it's an incomplete picture if we sort of have this conversation without saying that, you know, this whole phenomenon was really, um, it, it was carried along on the back of the internet. Um, you know, I don't think you would have had the same results if they had done this in, you know, 1982 before broadband access was available. But in an, in a networked digitized environment where people could create this content easily and share it easily, there really was sort of this, this perfect set of circumstances for them to, um, take advantage of, of the, the sort of iterative dialogic creativity that this enabled. But the most interesting thing to me was people took the license itself. So what happened was they didn't just take the license and create new material for Dungeons and Dragons. People took the license and created their own new games and released those new games under the open game license. And, and to me, that's fascinating because it was really this repurposing of the license in a way that nobody anticipated. Um, and it's created this whole community or, 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 you know, industry of sort of a sub-industry within the larger role-playing game industry of people who make games and content available using the open game license. And, and so there are publishers who create only open game licensed material. Uh, and these are viable, you know, undertakings. Like the, these aren't, some, and, and it ranges across an incredible spectrum. I mean, some of it is literally, you know, a guy sort of sitting in his bedroom typing stuff up in Word and, and releasing that. But at the other end of the spectrum, you have very sizable companies with, you know, dozens and dozens of employees and, and hundreds of products being released that make use of the open game license. So the, the, the license had an afterlife that I think nobody really predicted and that I think has really been positive. You know, if you're looking at this from the perspective, really any perspective, but if you're looking at it from the perspective of did it, you know, result in more creativity? Did it result in more products being created? Did it result in more people participating in creative activity, undertaking their own creative activities and sharing those with other people? And I think across all of those metrics, the answer is, you know, yes, all the way down the line. Mm, mm, mm. And that's really interesting as well to me because it seems like there's a way in which there's a tendency to kind of conceptualize open content and open source as being like part of like a gift economy and kind of almost like antithetical to commerce. But what you describe is actually a very functional system of commercial exchange in which it seems like the open licenses have actually facilitated commerce rather than made it more difficult. Absolutely. And, and you know, I mean, you can look at the D&D game itself, uh, you know, the, the core of the D&D game, the, the core rules have been available uh, for free, you know, online in Word and PDF documents, um, licensed under the open game license for, you know, nearly two decades now. Um, and, and that does not seem to have hurt the, you know, the commercial viability of the product whatsoever. If anything, you know, it's stronger now than it has ever been in the past. And there's, you know, again, it's difficult. I don't want to mischaracterize the situation and say that everybody that's participating in this is doing this for the same reasons and is having the same sort of experience. But you, as you've described, I mean, you definitely have a number of players and, and a large number of players, comparatively speaking, in the industry who are, you know, making a living doing this. Like this provides, you know, 
an income, a, a, a living wage for, for lots and lots of people. At the other end of the spectrum, there's lots of people who use it as a mechanism for creating content and putting it out there so that they can build you know, their own brand or, or, or sort of develop their reputation as really innovative and, and creative uh, game designers. And they sort of use it at the beginning of their career, get a name, make a name for themselves, and then kind of move on and, and move towards a more proprietarian model. But, you know, the license is being used in a way that, that complements uh, commercial revenue generating enterprises. And, you know, I, I think the best indication of that is the company that owns Dungeons and Dragons now is, is Hasbro. You know, it's one of the world's two largest uh, toy and game manufacturers, and they continue to release their products using the open game license. And this is one of the most valuable brands in the gaming world. Um, you know, they sell mi tens of millions of dollars of product every year, uh, despite the fact, and, and frankly, I would argue um, as a result of the fact uh, that, that it's, its core is available under the open game license. So a big part of your dissertation is also the actual study that you did. So I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the subject of your study, the sort of methodology, and sort of what you were looking for and what you found in the course of the study that you conducted. Sure. So as you mentioned, it was a qualitative study. So I, I did semi-structured interviews uh, with individuals and representatives of companies in the role-playing game industry who release product or have released product using the open game license. Um, and one of the fascinating things to me about the study was, was how nuanced and, and thoughtful the people who use the open game license are about their use of it. Um, so I was sort of expecting that I was going to, uh, encounter, you know, a bunch of people who, when I asked them, you know, why did you use this? And essentially, are you happy with the fact that you've used it? Did you sort of accomplish your goals? I was kind of expecting, and I, you know, I don't want to caricature the the uh, expectation, but I was kind of expecting I was going to get a bunch of sort of, I'll call it, I'll call it the hippie response, right? Like the, this notion that, oh, you know, I don't really, like money doesn't mean anything to me. I'm just, I'm here to create and I'm here to share. And I just really love sharing and, it, you know, sharing is you know, the most important thing in my life. And there were a few people who, who were like that, uh, and genuinely so, from what I could tell. Um, but there were a lot of people who were quite, you know, instrumental in, in, in describing how they used it. And so they said, look, I, you know, there's benefits that I get from sharing. Uh, I'm happy to, you know, leverage the license and use it in a way which, you know, results in benefits to me. Um, but at the same time, you know, I, I just kind of like seeing people take my stuff and enjoy themselves um, and, and create their own, their own new content, you know, based on the materials that I've licensed and, and made available to them. And so, you know, I, I was talking, again, across a fairly, you know, broad spectrum of, of undertaking. So, you know, the guy in his, in his bedroom, all the way to, um, you know, operations that have dozens and dozens of employees. Um, and, and I was just sort of struck by how kind of variegated the responses were. Um, I was expecting to get a, a much more kind of cynical set of answers. And um, they're really, you know, they've... The people who, who use license tend to have thought about it quite a bit. Um, and, and like I said, they're quite thoughtful in, in describing what it is that they're doing and why they're doing it. Mm -hmm. So, so Bob, it, 
In, in closing, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about what you think your study of open source licensing in the context of the Dungeons & Dragons open gaming license can tell us more generally about uh, the social role of of open source and how we ought to think about that in relation potentially to other sort of content industries, as it were. I think the default assumption in, in most content industries is that the only viable way to exploit the content is through a closed approach. In other words, the, the only way to make money is really by locking down the content and making sure that it's accessible and used only in a fairly constricted way with an eye towards maximizing revenue at the point of use so that every use necessarily sort of generates some kind of payment to the licensor or owner. And I think what I've discovered or, or what the story that I tell demonstrates is that that's not necessarily the case for all types of content uh, across all types of industries if, if, and for all types of licensors. I think there is a, a, a sort of sweet spot for a variety of different types of creative expression um, where this type of open approach can be used really productively. I think you have to be smart about it. I, I don't think it's for everybody. I don't think it's for every type of work. You know, I, I certainly wouldn't argue that, you know, every sort of Hollywood uh, major studio picture should be released under an open content license. Um, but I, I think there are a significant number of properties out there, I'll use that term, um, which could really benefit from a more open approach. And, and, you know, I'll take the example because it, it's sort of an adjacent area that I, I touched on a little bit in my dissertation of fan fiction. You know, I think there are certain content owners who, who look at the phenomenon of fan fiction and recoil from it. And, you know, their instinct is to say, well, how, how do we shut this down or how do we marginalize this or how do we control it? And then there's other content owners who look at it and say, this is amazing. Like people are really engaged with our, our, our work. They just want to talk, you know, not just want to talk about it, but they want to talk about it. They want to share it with their friends. They want to use it to inspire their own creativity. And, you know, from both a normative perspective, but I think also from a commercial perspective, I think the second approach in a lot of cases is the better one. Um, and so I think open content licenses are one way by which content owners can, you know, maximize the, the reach of their content and can maximize the the sort of the impact of their content because it really lets people engage with it in a way which is is, is much more productive, um, you know, whatever metric you want to use for describing pro productive, uh, and in a way which I think ultimately you know, redounds to the benefit of, of the content owner and the, and the audience members who are, who are making use of it. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And thanks so much, Bob, for coming on the show. I really enjoyed reading your dissertation. And honestly, I don't read dissertations all that often. This one's, uh, you know, stands apart from the pack as it were. And, um, and it was really great to hear from you, uh, about, this cool subject and and your really interesting study as well. So I, I hope other people can have access if they want to check out the information in your dissertation as well. Great. Thanks so much, Brian. Really enjoyed it.
Master, your guide in the realm of Dungeons and Dragons. 